Catholic Views. I'm your host, Renee Kranz. On the show with me today will be Heather Eicholtz. She is the director of the Marriage Tribunal for the Diocese of Sioux Falls. She's going to come in and talk to us about a subject that is probably going to be really important to a lot of people or really interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage, um, annulments, and how it all works and why the church does it and all of the misunderstandings that go along with it. There's a lot of stuff. In one episode. In one episode. Wow. Yes. It's a really great episode. So I hope you'll stick around. Even if it doesn't apply to you, it probably applies to someone you know, Mm -hmm. and you might be able to help them. So first we have Dr. Chris Bergwald for some biblical bites. Dr. B. Yes, ma'am. And wait. Oh. And we have Bill Seeley here too. Oh, hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Oh, Oh, he's just (laughs) waving to the camera, but not everybody's watching. Sorry, Bill. Hi. Hi. Thanks, Bill. Now you've got to get like the... uh, Jenny, who, oh, Jenny Carson's psych. Ed, Ed McMahon. Ooh. You, you work, on, work, on that, work on that, Bill. Well, I'll let you go off the hook for now. Maybe you come up with it in the next few minutes. So in, in again, we're, uh, not again, um, If in case you people aren't remembering or haven't tuned in before, um, we're in year B in the three-year cycle for the Sunday Mass readings. Mm-hmm. And I want to once more turn to the gospel. Been focusing on the gospel for several yeah, weeks now. So much good stuff in there. Uh, there is a ton of good <laughs> stuff. John before, now the last week, and again this week, we're back to Mark. Uh, this is later in Mark chapter 7. What's Most of the gospel is about Jesus' healing of a deaf man. Okay, oh. But it starts off with this Most line. Most of the chapter? Most of what we read about in the reading. Okay. Uh, the, the gospel, oh, I see what you're saying. The gospel yes. for okay. today is yep, yep. mostly about, but it starts this way. Again, Jesus left the district of Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the, into the district of the Decapolis. So this is going to be one of those map episodes Uh-oh. that Bill loves. I'm the map. So, <laughs> for so here's the thing. So Jesus left the district of Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the district of the Decapolis. So, Renee, I'm going to describe this for folks, but for, for, for who are listening, for you, Renee, and those who are watching, Jesus is leaving the district of Tyre, okay. and he's going to end up in the Decapolis, which is here. Okay. But he goes, and for, so for you, it's to the southeast, yep. but he goes by way of Sidon. Which is to the north. Which is to the north, 20 okay. some miles north. And then he gets his weight. So, oh. so it, it's like now for the folks listening, it, it's like um, saying, rogue, rogue I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave Sioux Falls and I'm going to go to Yankton by way of Watertown. Like, wait, <laughs> uh, they're not. That, that interstate had a lot of road construction on it. <laughs> right. It was Google Maps like just really to, totally stir, steered me wrong. So what's going on here? So Jesus goes north. And then he turns east, and then he comes south again. And the entire place that he travels through, so Tyre, Sidon, uh, and then the Decapolis. Do you, Renee, do you know anything about Tyre, mm-hmm. Sidon, or the Decapolis? No. They're all Gentile lands. That could have been a good guess. But you I didn't guess of, it because you were afraid. Yes. But be not afraid, Renee. You should have just been out there and you could bold. have thrown Bill under the bus, well, but he probably would have gotten I didn't it. Ask Bill. <laughs> I keep forgetting to ask Bill these questions. You just got in dead air. <laughs> So why is that significant, do you think? Well, he obviously had a reason for doing it because Jesus doesn't do very many no, things without right. a reason. So what's so what's notable what I just said? He went through Gentile land. So? Uh, they don't usually do that. Right. So- You usually take the most direct route. Right. You would know that's well, safe. That, that too. That's safe. So Jesus, faithful Jew, 
Jews, faithful Jews, we talked about the Pharisees last week, like mm-hmm. Jews who take their faith their faith very, very seriously, they don't interact with the Gentiles. Right. They're, they're, those are the pagans. We don't have anything to do with them. Um, so that's one thing. So he's doing something different, but it's also, it's showing that Jesus, while he does focus most of his public ministry on his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. he's coming for everyone. And in fact, that's what the Jewish, the chosen people were intended to be from the get go. Yes. The firstborn among all the nations. Mm -hmm. So the idea here, what we're seeing is how Jesus is subtly by his route showing how, yes, I'm focusing most of my attention on my Jewish brothers and sisters, but I came for all people. And in fact, the deaf man, the Decapolis, this is probably a Gentile who he actually cured as well. So it's just a little sort of subtle hint that I've come not only for my Jewish brothers and sisters, but in fact, for everyone. Salvation will be, redemption will be for all peoples. I'm so glad because I really need that. Amen. So do we all. Thanks, Dr. B. You bet. Joining me in the studio today is Heather Eicholtz. She is the director of the Marriage Tribunal for the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. How are you today? Very good. And yourself? Good. I'm great. I'm great. This is um, we we brought Heather in to talk about divorce and annulments because that is her primary work, and this is a topic that I think very uh, there's a lot of confusion around this. So I wanted to make sure that we could maybe get some of those things, those confusions, those misunderstandings answered. So hopefully we can do that today. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay, good. (laughs) So uh, Heather, will you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a canon lawyer, Um, which sounds very intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see. I grew up in a very small town in Northern Minnesota. That was pretty much a Catholic stronghold. Mm -hmm. You were Roman Catholic, Catholic, Russian Catholic, so there was just very limited religious exposure in the town. Um, and then, you know, through the course of life, um, I ended up moving to Owensboro, Kentucky. Oh, okay. And I attended an Ursuline University, Brescia University mm-hmm. in um, Owensboro, initially for youth ministry. Oh, okay. And um, I had a couple of professors that said, We'd like you to take a look at theology. We think you're better suited for that. So Mm. in kind of researching a bachelor's in theology, I agreed. So I transferred over to that. And during the course of the theology degree, um, I had uh, a mentor, Father Leonard Alvey, and uh, a professor, Dr. Dan Koontz, who Mm -hmm. said to me, we really think that you have an aptitude for canon law. Mm. And you're like, who, me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who am I? I'm nobody. <laughs> right. Um, so we they always think that about ourselves, which is so sad. <laughs> we do. Um, but so then they had me watch some lectures mm-hmm. uh, from a professor, Ken Pennington, okay. at Catholic University. Mm-hmm. Kind of, he taught history of canon law. And as I watched the lectures, I thought, wow, I really love this. Mm-hmm. This is a great aspect of the church. Um, and so after I graduated with my bachelor's in theology, I was accepted into the canon law program mm-hmm. in Ottawa, Ontario at St. Paul University. And I spent the next three years up there. Wow. So what was it about it that you said you really loved that? Uh, can you kind of nail down what it was that attracted you to it? I can. It, it seems like it seems like a weird thing to say <laughs> to outsiders. <laughs> True. Yeah. 
Um, like I said, I grew up in a town that was predominantly Roman Catholic. Right. And so, you know, you just blanketly accept, especially as a cradle Catholic, whatever the church says. Right. This is who I am at my core. This is what we do. But I used to watch my great-grandmother not be able to go up for communion. Mm. And I never really understood why until years later. Um, she was married off in an era where they married you at 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and her husband left after they had four children together, just mm-hmm. kind of abandoned her. And, you know, she had remarried. Oh, sure. Um, very nice gentleman, Grandpa Louie. But she wasn't allowed to go to communion. Right. And I discovered it was because she didn't have a declaration of nullity from the Catholic Church on her first marriage. Mm-hmm. And it was only a few years before she passed away that a priest, we were in the Diocese of Duluth, said to her, we're going to take care of this for you. Don't Mm -hmm. worry about it. And she was thrilled to be able to get communion again. And in watching these videos, I realized this is what allowed her to do that. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to do that for people. Yeah. And so it just really sparked my interest. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, what a great story. <laughs> All right. So you were recently interviewed for the feature story for the September uh, Bishop's Bulletin, which by the time this airs, that should be mostly out in mailboxes. So okay. um, and you talked about the, the story was about the perceived nose of the church. And you talked about some of the misunderstandings mm-hmm. people have about annulments, especially, but about divorce and marriage. So I want to just kind of talk a little bit about some of those things. Um, can you can you tell us first, what does the church say about divorce and, and maybe marriage too? Okay. Well, civil divorce mm-hmm. isn't recognized by the Catholic Church because God ordered marriage when he created everything. Mm-hmm. And as far as the church is concerned, he never handed over authority to marriage or divorce to the state okay. or your country's government. Right. So they believe that natural law is what marriage falls under. Mm-hmm. And they believe that you need a church tribunal to look at your marriage in order to determine if there was an indissoluble bond created at the moment of I do, mm-hmm. or if something in natural law stood in the way of creating that indissoluble bond. Okay. Um, It's a great way to explain it. Yeah. You know, I mean, because when you think about it, God created everything and Mm -hmm. he put a natural order to it and marriage is included in that. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the church understands because of our broken human nature Mm -hmm. that things happen in marriage that causes two people well, basically to be impossible to live together. And they understand that God never asks anybody to do the impossible. Right. So even though they don't acknowledge civil divorce, how they look at it is that it's a separation of the spouses with the bond remaining. Okay. If you you haven't had the annulment done. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So what are a couple of examples you could maybe give us of what would stand in the way of a marriage being being uh, sacramentally complete. That was a bad way. I sometimes say things in a not very elegant way, so help me. <laughs> okay, so 
instances that would cause a marriage to not rise to the level of a sacrament would be something like force and fear. Okay. So say a young woman finds out that she's expecting Mm -hmm. and her father basically has a shotgun wedding for her and the young man. She didn't have free will. Right. The most important thing when you're deciding to marry is you have free will. The next most important thing is that that free will can prudently evaluate all the information about you and the person you want to marry sure. so that you understand the roadblocks that are going to rise up in marriage right. and where you're going to have your strengths. Right. Um, another instance would be if somebody wants a green card or medical insurance, oh, sure. mm-hmm. the church considers that you're simulating your consent because you're not marrying this person for marriage. Mm-hmm. You're marrying them for an exterior object that you desire. Sure. And you can't have a bond if you don't freely hand yourself over <clears throat> and freely accept the handing of that other person. Right, right. Um, another thing is a lack of discretionary judgment. Okay. And this one, this one is a sticking point for people. Okay. Because it's so broad. And what I say to people is when you're putting together a puzzle, you have to have all of the pieces for the puzzle to really fit and go together. Mm-hmm. A lack of discretionary judgment would mean that you had some of the puzzle pieces. But when you tried to put the whole puzzle together, you were missing certain pieces. And those pieces really spoke to the character of the person you were marrying. Sure. And when those pieces were discovered, the marriage was very hard for you to fulfill. Sure. Um, Really, truly, the church says you need to have a lot of knowledge about the person Mm -hmm. you're marrying, Mm -hmm. and nothing can influence your decision. Wow. So there's there's really a lot of things that come into this. Yeah, those are three examples of yeah. numerous grounds. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's really helpful. So um, what are some of the misunderstandings uh, that about how the church sees divorce that you have um, witnessed in the people you work with? And even outside of that, because I know you probably, you probably have heard many. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I actually don't tell people what I do for the church or I get bombarded. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> so usually I tell them I'm just a paper pusher. <laughs> there you go. Don't mind me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, some of the misunderstandings people have is because Catholics are unique mm-hmm. in the fact that they have a foot in the secular world mm-hmm. and they have a foot in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And they don't always see things the same way. So what happens is because we're we're raised in those two worlds, mm-hmm. we combine them. Sure. And a lot of times people put misunderstandings from the secular world and other religions into mm-hmm. what they think the Catholic Church believes. Sure. Um, A great example is under civil law, a marriage is a contract. Right. So basically it's about property Mm -hmm. where the church sees it as a covenant relationship with your spouse and with God. That's very different. Yeah. Very different. If you look at the Old Testament where we get an understanding of covenant, it stems from all of the covenant relationships that God created with the Israelites. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially 
if you look at it, the covenant relationship of the rainbow. The rainbow says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. Mm -hmm. And God always keeps his promises. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at marriage for the Catholic Church, that vow is the promise of the covenant you're always supposed to keep. Right, right. Where in the secular world, because it's a contract that deals strictly with property, Mm -hmm. contracts have terms. Right. And once the terms are fulfilled, the contract either comes to completion or if there's something that interferes with the terms, it can be broken. Right. And that's how the church looks at, at divorce. Right. It's the protection of legal rights under a contract or for the safety of the person. Sure. And the church never asks you to stay in a marriage that's unsafe. Right. Right. You always have the option to leave because, again, they never ask you to do anything impossible. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the way I'm kind of hearing this is uh, the the covenant that God created with Israelites was a family bond. Yes. And um, he doesn't renege on his promises. Exactly. And he never did with the Israelites. Right. He, he sometimes would create new covenants to bring in more people, in fact, is what he did. Yes. To create more family bonds. So that really is a big difference between a contract. God yeah. never went back on any of those things. So. No. Yeah, that's a really important uh, distinction. Okay, so let's talk about some of the specific misunderstandings. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm talking to Heather Eicholtz, who is the Marriage Tribunal Director for the Sioux Falls Diocese. Um, there is a misunderstanding about communion. Oh. And how that, a big one. <laughs> so can you clear that up as best you can? I think okay. you can do a pretty good job. So. <laughs> I know, that's a, it's a big one. It's huge, and it's the one I get the most. Sure. And it actually causes people to walk away from the church, which is so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, the church says, if you are divorced and you have civilly remarried someone, mm-hmm. are living with someone or are in an active, intimate relationship with somebody other than your spouse, mm-hmm. you are not supposed to go to communion. Right. But if you're divorced and you're basically living a celibate life right. and you're on your own, you're not living with anybody mm-hmm. and you haven't remarried anybody, you're invited still to come up to communion right. because you're respecting the fact that they see your marriage bond is still existing. Right. The point of the nullity process is for you to ask the church to look at your marriage to clarify that status. Mm. Was my marriage also sacramental or did my marriage always stay good and natural? Right. If your marriage always stayed good and natural, we grant you the nullity, and then you're free to remarry in the church. You're free to basically participate in any way you want. Right. If we say, your marriage reached the level of a sacrament, mm-hmm. then the church asks you, we know you're civilly divorced, but we still see you as having an indissoluble bond mm-hmm. with that spouse. So would you please refrain from dating? Would you refrain from civil marriage, um, mm-hmm. intimate relationships? Mm-hmm. That's until, a big ask. Yeah. yeah. It's a big ask, but it's not an impossible one. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of people get very upset because they don't understand why the church would ask them that. Right. 
the church is asking you that because it believes in that covenant relationship. Right. right. And we're not asking you to do anything that God doesn't already understand taking place in your life. Right, right. Is there, I'm going to ask you a question that maybe you won't be able to answer and that's totally okay, but is there a difference um, as far as communion if you were the one who sought the divorce before any nullity is done? Okay. No, um, the rules of the Catholic Church apply equally across the board just because the church truly upholds that equality and dignity in every single person. Okay, great. That's good to know. Um, I think another big sticking point, at least in my experience with some of the people I know, has been um, they are told or they envision, I guess is the best word I could use, that um, the church now sees their ch- any children from the marriage as um, illegitimate. And that can be a, a big stumbling block for them staying in the church or seeking an annulment. So can you clear that misunderstanding up, please? (laughs) I would be happy to because I even have children call my office worried they're illegitimate. Right, right. And that is a terrible thing for a child to have to think. Yes. Yeah. Your children were given to you as a gift by God. Mm -hmm. Nobody can take that gift away. Right. Nobody can make that gift illegitimate. God chose you to be their parent. You can't change that. Mm -hmm. Illegitimacy was part of the Catholic Church when they crowned royalty back in the day. Oh, sure. And you had to prove that the heir to the throne was legitimate. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do that. No. Children are always legitimate. They're always beautiful. They're always gifts from God. They're always yours. No mortal can take that away. Right. That's so helpful. So there's no, there should be no concern about that. Right. The church does not view it that way. No. Uh, and it, it just doesn't teach that. It's period. not even part of our laws or right. our theology. Right, right. Um, let's see. Um, you did talk about in the story a little bit about the church demonstrating God's mercy in the annulment process, because it can be very painful for people. It's painful and invasive with the questions that we have to ask Mm -hmm. because we have to dive into the most intimate parts of your life. Right. Nobody wants to tell a stranger that. Oh, no. You're very nice, but yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But I would agree. You're like, I'm not sure I want to do that. But but yeah, there's a lot of... a lot of good that flows from that process, I can imagine. Yes, because I never act alone. I'm always acting in conjunction with your pastor. Mm -hmm. And so how I view the nullity process is that it's an olive branch. God is extending you because he understands we're broken as human beings. Mm -hmm. And he understands that life happens, situations happen, you know, sometimes past hurts come up and make a play in how you decide to marry. Mm -hmm. So the point to me of the nullity process is to help you self-reflect, but also to spiritually make you stronger right? and to lead you maybe in a different direction with your relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And that's where the mercy and love of God comes through because he's always extending another opportunity to you to meet him. Right. And the nullity process is no different. It's another opportunity for you to meet God through your pastor and processing what's going on during the process with your pastor. Right. 
and the church is not passing judgment during that time. Uh, no, no. I mean, there's there's a judgment of whether or not the marriage is, you know... Sacramental. Sac- right, but not of the person. No. Right. Never. I think that's important to know. It's really an important distinction because you have two people coming from very different backgrounds. Yes. <laughs> no one's backgrounds are the same because we're all unique individuals. Mm-hmm. And the two of you are trying to come together and live under one roof mm-hmm. 24-7. Right. <laughs> there's going to be problems. Mm-hmm. Um And all of us, including myself, we all have our bad relationships Mm -hmm. that influence how we go into the next relationship. That's a good point. So the church does not judge people. The church is looking at circumstances and only judging if everything there was necessary for the sacrament. Right. Just because I say your marriage wasn't sacramental never means your marriage didn't happen or didn't exist. It's always good and natural. Right. It always took place. It's your human history. And you can always love the person, but maybe you just can't live with the person. Right, for sure. And I'm seeing a marriage on its absolute worst day. Right. That's not the people. Right. That's a set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So, no, there's no judgment on people. It's just circumstances. Good. Good. Um, okay, we have about a minute. I know that there's there's a process, and this can be a long process. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about how long it takes, and when should someone begin this process? I always tell people not to begin right away after a div- civil divorce, okay. because all of the emotions that are entailed with the ending of a marriage is a grief process. Sure. Something just died. You just lost something. Give yourself some time. Mm-hmm. Wait until you feel like you should come to the process mm-hmm. because it's ripping open old wounds right. and you have to be ready for that. Right. Um, and then I always tell them the process can take up to one year. Right. Usually give me about nine months to do it. And that's because I have to collect information. Sure. So people provide me names of witnesses mm-hmm. and I have to ask them questions mm-hmm. and find out what they knew in their perspective. And that can take a while because everybody yeah. has busy lives. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes it can take up to three months to collect all the witness testimony. Mm-hmm. Then the Vatican has set timelines for things okay. where we have to let things, so to speak, cool. Mm-hmm. So you'll have 15 days where I cannot work on your case or 10 days where I cannot work on your case because the next step I have to give it breathing time okay, between sure. just in case anything ever pops up Sure, because the church never, ever, ever wants to take apart anything that has a chance of reconciliation. Sure. Yep, that makes sense. So we go very and it's a good slow. Thing. Yeah. 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 Slow and methodical is the way right. the process goes. Right. Okay. Good. Well, Heather, that time went super fast. I feel like we could take another 20 minutes and go through more of this, but I think I hope this will be really helpful for people. And I do too. I imagine if they ever have questions, can they reach out? Oh, always. Okay. I am always available to anybody, Catholic or non-Catholic, who has questions. Good. So you can always find Heather at the uh, diocesan website at sfcatholic.org. Um, her contact information is there, and she's happy to talk to you if you have any questions. Or your parish priest. It's another good spot. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You bet. All right. Um, If you haven't found us on uh, social media yet, you can find us at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at SF Diocese. 
That is it for us today. Hope you'll join us again next week for more Catholic Views. Thank you.